Bummer. We were hoping that was going to work this morning. Uh, as we said earlier, we are having technical difficulties this morning. Miss Beverly, we will show that video, and you will want to be here, the rest of you, to see it. It's an incredible video, uh, powerful uh, video. Uh, so, good morning. Uh, sorry about that, but my name is Daniel. I'm one of the pastors here. If I don't know you, I'd like to get to know you. Michael, that means you're going to have to come back too. Uh, with, with Miss Beverly to see the video. Uh, glad y'all are here. And it is an incredible story uh, of Miss Beverly, uh, of what God has done in her life and uh, how God has worked uh, in and through her in our church. And it's a great segue, which is why I wanted to start uh, with it this morning. Uh, can we take the Lenovo off the screen? Um, thank you. Uh, just so y'all aren't distracted by the, the colors behind me. Um, but it's a, it's a great segue. It's why I wanted to show it uh, into our new sermon series. Uh, Ephesians, uh, the New Testament letter, is what we're going to be looking at over the next few months together. And the letter of Ephesians really answers this question, who are we? Uh, who are we as the church? What is our identity as the people of God? How then shall we live? Uh, and I'm excited that we're going to get to plug in and, and dive deep into this uh, New Testament epistle uh, I need to start by giving you a big grammar lesson uh, before we start our series. Uh, did you adjust light lighting? We're just keeping you awake this morning. There we go. Uh, just making sure you're awake. But I'm going to start with a big grammar lesson. And uh, you might be like, now it's time to take a nap. Uh, you may have hated grammar. Uh, children, you may have uh, maybe don't like grammar uh, while you're in it this morning, but this is a huge grammar lesson that I'm about to give you that I need to give you before we jump in to this book of Ephesians. And this grammar uh, that uh, I am about to lay out for you is counterintuitive to the way most of us think, to the way most of us were raised, most people and religions in our world operate. Because here's most of the way the world uses grammar. The imperative always precedes the indicative. The imperative, now you're already falling asleep, the imperative is a verb or a phrase that issues a command. The indicative is a verb or a phrase that states an objective fact or reality. So most religions in our world tells us that if we want something to be true of us, then we better do something about it. Well, we better work hard, we better earn it, we better labor to that end if we want it to be true of us. See, the imperative, the command to work, to grind, to labor, precedes the indicative, what we, we want to be the objective truth. For instance, you want to be in shape, right? That's the objective reality that you want. Then you better work out, you better eat well, right? You better watch your nourishment. We better do something first in order for that to become a reality. The imperative precedes the indicative. Now, I preached last week on sloth, and I talked about the value of hard work. So what I'm about to say, I'm not suggesting being slothful, but the grammar of imperative preceding the indicative is counter to the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's a new type of grammar that we need to learn. It's a gospel grammar that pushes against everything in us. And the gospel grammar is that the indicative always precedes the imperative. What is true of us in the gospel is first. And then this truth, this identity compels us towards working harder, towards loving one another. See, the first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul, the author, 
uses verbs in the indicative form for the whole first three chapters. Statements of objective truth and the reality of the Christian. And then chapters 4 through 6, Paul uses the imperative, the commands, the call to live out this identity. For three chapters, Paul is going to ground and root us in an identity. And then in chapters, chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says, therefore. And for three chapters, we'll hear, therefore, we are to live like this because this is true of who we are in Christ. So that's a big grammar lesson for you this morning. We're going to need to remember that each week as we come in to Ephesians over the next few months. So if you will stand, we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 1. We start the series, Ephesians 1, verses 1 through 14. This is God's word to us this morning. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption of sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, and all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory and his grace. Let's, uh, let's pray this is the word of God for the people of God this morning and it uh, accomplishes its purposes for us. Let's pray. Lord, I do ask that you would come now and you'd speak to us, that you would give us undivided hearts, undivided minds to, to hear from you. Would you remove me? the one who gets to, to speak your word, and would Jesus be clearly seen this morning? Would you, Lord, wake us up to the blessings, to every blessing that we get to receive in Christ this morning? Uh, Lord, would you uh, make the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart pleasing to you? Give us ears to hear in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, the question, who am I? Who are we? It's a question of identity, right? And the question can actually be one that's extremely hard to articulate and respond to. Uh, in my freshman year at Auburn University, I interviewed for something called Plainsmen, and Plainsmen are the representatives at the university to alumni, to major donors. Uh, if you ever watch an Auburn football game, uh, they're the students who are in orange jackets down on the field and before the game. Uh, and so I interviewed for this, and I'd never been in a, in a major interview before. So I was nervous, 18 years old, nervous, trying to prepare for the interview. And I can remember sitting down uh, for the interview, and I knew two of the older plainsmen who were interviewing me. And I, I thought I was ready. The first question, who is Daniel Mason? 
tell us a little bit about yourself. And man, I laid a big old fat egg. Like it was, it was embarrassing. I mean, I, it caught me off guard. I, I was ready for everything Auburn. And then they asked me, who Daniel Mason? And supposed to be a softball question, but I started rattling things off. Well, I, I'm from Combs, Georgia. Uh, I went to Pacelli High School. I'm the son of Robert and Judy. I have an older brother, Travis. Uh, I want to be a doctor. Uh, I like to play golf, and I like to fly fish. I'm in Phi Gamma Delta fraternity, and I just kept rattling things off in, in a sense of nervousness. And it was, a, it was a sad start to the interview, and I did a little bit better with the other questions, but I didn't make it to the next round. <laughs> because of my response to the first question, but who am I? Who, who are you? What is our identity, or what do you think defines you? Do you think it's your job? Do you think it's your education? Is it being single, married, divorced? Is it your ethnicity? Is it your put-together family? Is it your past with your struggles and uh, failures? Is it your present? struggle and addiction? Is it the clothes that you wear, the car that you drive, the house you own, your retirement account? Is it your hobbies? Is it your activities? I could list a number of things. Now the things that I just mentioned can be true of you, and I'm not suggesting that you deny them and think they don't play into who you are as a person, but the question I'm asking this morning is what do you think ultimately defines you? Paul starts in verse 3 and writes, perhaps the most beautiful sentence ever penned in any language. Verse 3 through 14 is one sentence, over 200 words, in which Paul the Apostle, like a waterfall, pours out all that is true of the Christian. Paul gives us our identity. So we're going to look at three things this morning. How do we get this new identity? What is the new identity? And then what difference should it make? How do we get this new identity first? Simple answer. It is given to us by another. The resounding phrase in this passage is in Christ, in him. Blessed are those who are in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. Over 12 times Paul says in Christ in this passage. The Apostle John in his gospel in chapter 15 uses the imagery of a branch being connected to a tree to describe being in Christ. Romans 11, Paul says that we are grafted in, right, like a branch into a tree. We are united to him. Being in Christ is being in union with him. Another imagery that scripture uses, which I mentioned last week, is the imagery of marriage. When you marry someone, You become united to them. What is yours is theirs. What is theirs is yours, right? You're united. A friend of mine uh, was in town this past week, and he was joking with me that he had just told his 21-year-old son uh, that week, jokingly, that his son can make more money in 15 minutes if he marries a wealthy woman than he could working his whole life. Uh, And he was joking. He was joking. But it's true. It's true. If a man or a woman marries someone who is extremely wealthy, once they get married, they're now wealthy, right? Even though they didn't do anything to earn it, all they did was become united to that person in marriage. When someone puts their trust and faith in Jesus Christ, they are now united 
to him. All that is true of Christ is now true of you. Nothing you did earned it. Simply given to you. Here's another reason marriage is a good analogy for union. When you marry someone, there's normally a day, a time set aside, right, for a ceremony, uh, for the exchanging of vows and rings. There's a point in which people get married. November 3rd, 2012 was the day Rachel and I got married. Now, there's a process that led to that day, right? We met, we dated, we got engaged, then we got married. But on November 3rd, we got united to one another. The same is true for being united to Jesus. There can be a process of questioning what is Christianity. You can date, if you will, But there ultimately has to come a time and a point where you become united to Jesus. And you are either in Christ or you're not. One girl in the ministry of RUF that I was at UNC Chapel Hill for five years uh, told me her story. or I I was actually a part of the story. Her name is Mary. And she came to me uh, after a large group, uh, a weekly meeting that we had. Uh, It was the uh, beginning of her sophomore year. And I remember Mary coming up to me after a large group. She was weeping, tears. And, and she, she said, I, I was so moved by being a part of this community tonight. Uh, and I was moved by being a part of this service. And, and see, Mary grew up in a non-Christian home. Uh, her parents actually encouraged her away from the faith. And she came in her sophomore year to UNC. She was hurting. She was searching. And so she came to a large group. And we started meeting after this large group. And Uh, And she would uh, would also meet with other students in the ministry, and she started reading the Bible. I told her to start with the Gospel of John, and so we would meet, and she would come with verses underlined. She would come with a a list of questions that she wanted to ask me. She was searching. She was questioning. I never pressured her to say a prayer that she wasn't ready to, to pray. I never pressured her to say she was a Christian when she wasn't ready to say she was a Christian, but over time, At least a year longer, Mary and I finally met again for probably the tenth or so time. And she said, Daniel, I think I'm a Christian. (laughs) She said, somewhere along the past year or so, I, I really have embraced Jesus. And I believe what Jesus says is true of him is true. She said, I'm not sure when it happened, but I know it happened. And she said, I'm ready to be baptized and to own my new identity as a Christian. So you don't necessarily need to have a date and a time when you became united to Jesus, but you do, know to know, you do need to know that there was a time when you said, I do. I do. So I wonder this morning, have you said, I do, to Jesus? Only by faith in Christ can we become united. It's not earned. It's not merited. It is given to us by another, this identity. Well, let's look secondly. What is this new identity that Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 1? I love what Philip Yancey writes in his book, uh, What's So Amazing About Grace. Listen to this quote by Yancey. He says, if I care to listen, I hear a loud whisper from the gospel that I did not get what I deserved. I deserved punishment, and I got forgiveness. I deserved wrath, and I got love. I deserved debtor's prison and God instead a clean credit history. I deserve stern lectures and crawl on your knees repentance. Instead, I got a banquet spread for me. 
verse 3 to 14, Paul spreads out the banquet feast of being united to Christ. Paul says we receive the blessings. And there are four blessings that I want to highlight this morning from our passage. But before I do that, I want to emphasize that Paul says we receive every spiritual blessing. Every. Not some, not partial, not a few now. And if we work a little harder, we'll get them later. We receive every blessing when we are in Christ. We lack nothing. Here's the first blessing that I want to highlight. Verse 4, we are chosen. Verse 4 says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. The first thing that Paul gets excited to share with the church in Ephesus is that before the world was formed, God made a determination to do something. He chose us. See, Paul is overflowing with joy because before he could ever think, he was thought of. Before he could ever love, he was loved. We are chosen before we could ever choose. This is an amazing truth that God knew you and he saw you before you were born and determined to pour out his love on you. This blessing, it gives incredible security to Christians. Incredible security. But if your relationship to God rests on your choice of him, you're never going to be secure as a Christian. Les Newsom, who's a friend and a former RUF campus minister, talks about how he would ask freshmen every year on campus. He'd ask them this question. If you assume yourself to be in good standing with God right now, why? So I'll pose that to you. If you assume yourself to be in good standing with God right now, why? And then they would begin to talk and he would say, if, well, the answer, if they answered that question was because I prayed a prayer, he'd ask, well, how do you know you were sincere enough? And if they answered because I really repented of my sins, he'd ask, well, how do you know you repented with pure motives? See, the point being is that if anyone's relationship with God depends on personal sincerity or personal effort or our goodness, it will always be unstable. The blessing of being chosen gives incredible security. But it also gives humility. C.S. Lewis calls it blessed self-forgetfulness. See, if we truly understand that God chose us because he loved us, because he wanted to, that it, there's nothing to do with us, it was his love, then there is no room for self-boasting. We are his by his grace alone, not because we offer anything. There's also no room for self-loathing wallowing in pity because God knows you and he loves you and he chose you so we're chosen it's the first blessing the second blessing is adoption look at verse 5 Paul writes in love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ today we prayed for orphans across the globe those without family those without a mother and a father those who have no home. And I know some of you were fostered. Some of you were adopted uh, who were here this morning. There is a big difference in fostering and adopting. Most of you know this. Fostering is for a time. Adoption is forever. Adoption is an unbelievable picture of the gospel. I'm not saying fostering is, is not powerful, but adoption is an unbelievable picture of what has happened to us in Christ. See, we're not foster children of God. 
We're adopted children. Romans 8 says that we have received a spirit of sonship by which we cry out, Abba, Father. We're sons and daughters. He chose us to be his children forever. And we cry out, Dad, Dad. I heard a pastor talking about a couple in his church who had adopted a little girl and both parents had dark hair and the little girl they had adopted had blonde hair. Uh, And both parents uh, had told their daughter years before that they had adopted her, that they chose her, they wanted her to be in their family. And she was eight years old at the time, and she asked her parents, where did my blonde hair come from? Mom and Dad, where did my blonde hair come from? And and the mother starts talking, well, your dad's side of the family, there's some some traits there, people have blonde hair, and and the daughter stopped the mom, 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 I'm adopted, remember? And the mom said, that's right. I always forget. I always forget. See, when the father adopts us, he doesn't treat us as someone else's child. He treats us as his own child. He treats us like he does his son, Jesus. Here's the third blessing, redemption. Verse 7 says, in him, picking up, in Christ, in Christ, in him, Verse 7, we have redemption through his blood. John Stott defines redemption as the deliverance by payment of a price. And this was specifically applied to the ransoming of slaves. The payment of price to ransom a slave. And what Paul is saying is true of the Christian uh, is that apart from Christ first, we are bound and shackled to our sin. We're slaves to sin and unrighteousness and to be set free From this tyranny and slavery of sin, a price had to be paid to ransom and redeem us. And the price paid was the life and death of Jesus. It was the blood poured out on the cross. See, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. There had to be a payment. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Romans 8 tells us that in Christ there is now no condemnation. We have been bought back, chains and shackles broken, ransomed, redeemed. Can I get an amen? Amen. Amen. Here's the fourth blessing, inheritance. Inheritance. Paul now, after talking about his past and the blessings that he has received, he talks about the future and the blessing that he will receive. Look at verse 11. It says, in him we've obtained an inheritance. And then Paul shares what this inheritance is in verses 9 to 10, which really are key verses for the whole letter of Ephesians. That God is making known to us the mystery of his will, a plan to unite all things in him, in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. This mystery, this secret has now been disclosed. It's shared, and it's, gonna, and it's this truth that everything is brought together and united under the rule and the reign of King Jesus. See, it's vital for us not to only know our origin, that we're chosen, we're adopted as children of God, but it is crucial to understand our destination and our end. And our guaranteed destination is a new heavens and a new earth where all things are united in Christ. There's no more pain. There's no more tears. There's no more sin. There's no more divisions because of socioeconomic class or race. There's no longer 
poor, the powerless, the homeless. There's no longer those who are sick. There's no more death. This is where we're headed. And it's a promised destination. And the Holy Spirit gives us taste of this now so that we will know it will one day be complete. Our life is heading somewhere, church. Our God is pushing back the curse of sin and healing the broken places in every corner of our globe. Is there anything more exciting than this? Is there anything more exciting? Do you see why Paul pins this unbelievably beautiful sentence of 200 words? He couldn't contain it. He just kept writing about all the blessings that are in Christ. His heart just run over. The blessings of God in our lives have that impact. When we understand and we believe this identity, it makes a huge difference in our lives. So let's look lastly at what difference should all of this that I've been preaching on this morning make for us. The first thing is that it should produce in us freedom. Now, Rachel and I love having people over to our home. We love having people in our house. But there's a certain limit to what people who are visiting our home for dinner can do, right? It would be quite weird if we had you over for dinner and then I found you taking a nap in my bed, right? Now, if you asked to take a nap, I'd probably say go take a nap. Like, you, you're welcome. But if you came over for dinner and you were taking a nap in my bed, I'd be like, what are you doing? Um, right? Now, my son Henry... He has the freedom to go wherever he wants in our home, whenever he wants to go. Right? If he wants to get in my bed, he can get in my bed. If he wants to crawl up in my lap, he can crawl in my lap. There's nothing better when he goes up, up, and I pick him up and I hold him in my arms. He has access to our whole house, and he has access to Rachel and I that most of you probably will never have. <laughs> right? <laughs> probably, definitely never have. <laughs> He's our son. And he should have that freedom, right? As chosen, adopted, redeemed children of God, we have complete access to our Father through Christ. We have the freedom to cry when we hurt. We have the freedom to yell when we're angry. We have the freedom to know that if we sin or when we sin and struggle, that our dad doesn't want to give us away. He doesn't get fed up with us. We don't live in fear of God. We live in freedom. Here's the second thing that it should produce in us. Worship. I've already said that Paul is pouring out praise in this whole passage, right? To the praise of his glorious grace. That's the end for Paul. Verse 14, the passage ends, to the praise of his glory. When we understand that we have received the blessing and all the blessings that are in Christ, we will be a people of worship and praise a people of song and poetry, a people of passion and joy. Now, I realize that worship on Sunday morning can have many different expressions, depending on what you're comfortable with, depending on what church background you may have had. You can bow your head in awe of God, right? You can lift your eyes because you're enamored with God. You can lift your hands because you're excited about who He is. But I will say this, if we're singing songs and we're praying prayers and you find yourself not singing or not praying, you have to ask yourself, why? Do you understand all the blessings that we have received? If so, there can be reverence, there can be joy, 
There can be exuberance. There can be respect. Many things. But they will all be from the depths of our heart. They'll all be done with passion. Here's the third difference. Knowing that we are in Christ and this new identity that it should have in our life. Proclamation. Paul's writing this letter to to proclaim to the church in Ephesus the glory and the beauty of Jesus in this gospel. Paul cannot help but share it. He's like Jeremiah, the Old Testament prophet. It is like a fire in his bones. He cannot contain it. See, Paul, formerly Saul, persecutor of the church, enemy of the cross of Christ, now, verse 1, by the will of God, an apostle. He's a son of God. He's a saint. He must share to everyone who God is, what God has done, and what God has promised to do. When we understand our new identity, we will want to let people know. We'll want to let our neighbors and our co-workers and our families and our friends know who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Philip Yancey, he writes uh, again about a Soviet architect named Ernst Mizvitsny. My Soviet's not good, Gary. If you're in here, I'm sorry. Gary's fluent in Russian. I probably mispronounced the name. But Ernst Novitsny, perhaps the most renowned architect in the Soviet Union during the 1960s and 70s, during communist rule Soviet Union, atheism, right? no belief in God was the national rule. Novitsny was a Christian living out his identity as a Christian and as an architect. And he would often integrate crosses into his sculptures and his work. And even so, the Soviets tap him as the most famous architect and sculptor of his time. And so the Communist Party decides to build its main building. And for the face of the building, they ask Ernst to be the sculptor. And it was a 50-foot by 50-foot piece right in the center of the building, four panels. Each panel had to be approved by the Communist Party. He submitted each piece. Each piece was approved. And on the day of unveiling... As it was, the veil was pulled back, a massive cross was in the middle of this communist building. Now, for the Soviets, enough was enough. He was, he was exiled to Switzerland, later moved to the United States, to New York. You see, Ernst couldn't contain it. When you understand the gospel, you must proclaim it. You must tell everyone. Gospel grammar in Christ. Every spiritual blessing, therefore, we live with freedom, we worship with passion, and we proclaim unashamedly. Let's pray.